Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton and joining me today, the one, the only, the legend, the myth, the man, Mr. Sam Cooper of Planet F1. Of course, Sam joined us a couple of weeks ago in January and we did an interview series pod and got to know him really well. Sam, my friend, how the heck are you? Thanks for joining us again. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, man. Very excited. We're we're on the cusp of a Formula One championship. Of course, one of the marketing pillars of F1 launched yesterday in Drive to Survive. We just finished three days of preseason testing in Bahrain. My friend, for those that maybe didn't have the opportunity to join us a couple of weeks ago when we did that interview series podcast, what would you want the audience to know about you and, and your background with Formula One? Yes, I think you're right to say I've been, I work for Cycle Planet F1. I've been doing that a couple of years now and it's sort of it's just been ramping up really more and more as interest in the sport gets bigger and bigger like we're seeing the same sort of numbers so yes it's exciting time to be in the sport and like He's looking forward to a great Toy Toy Free, hopefully. Absolutely. I want to start a little bit with Drive to Survive because you released a fantastic piece yesterday on Planet F1 entitled, Is Netflix's Drive to Survive Nearing the End of the Road? So I read that article with great interest, my friend, because obviously there's some people in the community that love it. Some people take it at face value in terms of it being a lot of manufactured drama. Some people that dismiss it entirely. But what is undeniable is, like I said a few moments ago, it has become an absolute pillar of F1's marketing strategy, a pillar of their calendar, and it's brought a ton of people into the sport. What was your inspiration for this story? And do you think the future of the program being Netflix's Drive to Survive is the future for that program cloudy or does it remain bright? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I want to say like, I don't think there's ever been a sports documentary that's had such an impact on the sport it covers as Drive to Survive has. Like, the amount of fans that have come in, the popularity, like, it's made people like Daniel Ricciardo household names in countries that never heard of F1 before. So I think the work that Netflix has done has been incredible, really, like, to get all these new new fans into the sport. And I think, I don't think you can say the sport would enjoy the same levels of popularity it has done today if it wasn't for Netflix. But I think we've sort of gone from it being a documentary to sort of being part of the story. And what I mean by that is I think the drive to survive cameras are sort of playing a role within the paddock i mean we've heard people like max verstappen say that he doesn't like the fake narrative i mean he's not the only one to say it. i think total wolf said it lando norris has said it as well so i think the way they manipulate storylines i think if that's all you saw you'd, you'd probably come away with so many impressions that aren't quite as true i think the, the most common one that even lando norris himself was his so-called rivalry of carlos signs that wasn't really a rivalry and they sort of used audio from when it wasn't and i think little elements like that of sort of i mean what point does it cross from being a documentary to being like a drama scripted tv show really like i think the sport is exciting enough in itself that you shouldn't have to create these storylines and i think 2021 was the perfect example of that that's a perfect season in terms of drama and narrative and you can just tell it as it is so I don't think, well, I mean, I don't think there's any reason Netflix will stop it soon because obviously they don't release their viewing figures, but the fact that they keep renewing it season after season, I know they're already filming for next year. Like, it's obviously getting a lot of money in the door. But yeah, I think sort of a lot of people within the paddock are sort of turning away from it, just sort of accepting it as sort of this F1 reality show, really, when it's not supposed to, well, it didn't start off supposed to supposed to be that, yeah. Have you, like we're sitting here recording midday on Saturday, so a day and a half after it released, have you had a chance to immerse yourself in any of season five yet? And if so, what are your initial impressions? I, I must admit, I haven't watched much of it just because purely because it's come out at the same time as testing. So I've been watching a lot of that. But I, I must admit, I did skip forward to that uh, infamous team principal meeting <laughs> in Canada because I heard that Horner said this. I was like, did he really? So yeah, like, and even in that bit, like, Horner was like, are we doing this for the cameras? So the fact that it, the cameras become like a, a character in the world of F1. But yeah, I've seen minimal. I've heard drivers have sort of spoke a little bit about them watching themselves and that's it. So obviously they're watching. 
That's amazing. I have to acknowledge as well, and I'll, I'll full disclosure, one of my friends reached out to me a couple of minutes before we sat down. He's like, how are you enjoying season five so far? I'm like, dude, I'm still watching Clarkson's Farm season two. Like, let me get through <laughs> Clarkson's Farm season two before I get to drive to survive season five. So my friend, the reason that we're sitting down as per the title of this podcast is you and I had brainstormed some storylines that we wanted to talk about. So rather than doing a conventional season preview show, which is going to be available everywhere and everyone's going to be doing them and sharing their predictions, you and I wanted to sit down and talk about some of the bigger storylines that we're really eager to see play out during the course of the 2023 championship. I also have some listener questions. I, I, by the way, I made the mistake yesterday of sending out a tweet like, hey, slide us a DM if you've got any questions for Sam got 400 questions, so I had to parse it down to three <laughs> specific questions. But maybe we'll start with this storyline, and I know that this is one that you are eager to talk about. But can McLaren break through in 2023? And to set the table a little bit, obviously, this is an extremely strong marketing organization. There's huge expectations. They have a very high profile rookie. They have heaps of sponsorship and they are hugely popular, especially in the United States. My friend, I'll kick it over to you. What are your thoughts? What are your expectations about McLaren in 2023? Yeah, I think they're perhaps the most interesting team on the grid. I think if you'd asked me this time last week, I would have been very optimistic, but I think we've sort of seen early signs and testing of their car. I mean, they admit it themselves. Andrea Stella, the new team principal, said their car wasn't where they want to be. But if we ignore testing for a bit, because it can't always be a true reflection. I mean, yeah, it's a massively exciting time because you've got a new team principal, but you've also got Oscar Piastri, who's this really highly rated driver. I mean, it's, it's hard to think of another driver, maybe since Verstappen came in the sport, that's been so highly rated thanks to their junior career. Like, he won F3, he won F2 in back-to-back years, which I think only George Russell and Charles Leclerc had done before. So that's some pretty good names to be with. And he's joining a team with a driver that's really sort of proved himself in the sport, but is still very young. So I think going into it, they, they yeah, like I said, they are one of the most exciting teams. And whether they can break... It's a difficult one to know what McLaren are aiming for, because I think in the past they would have said, OK, we're going for wins and we're going for podiums. But I think they've obviously fallen away quite a lot since then. And like even last year, they missed out on P4 to Alpine. So I think their goal is to battle for P4. But having said that, their performance in testing, I think they are perhaps the weakest team that's come out of testing so far. Their car just doesn't seem up to scratch. I mean, that could be just them pretending they're worse than they are to sort of throw off their rivals. But... I think, judging by the way a lot of them are talking, there is genuine concern that it might not be as good as it is. And and then you're in a difficult situation because you've got Alpina doing really well, Aston Martin have made a lot of moves. Like, I think the midfield battle this year is going to be incredibly competitive and McLaren are going to have to hope they're near the top end, but all signs sort of point towards they won't be currently. I, I like that comp and that comparison about McLaren versus Alpine. And it's it's relevant maybe because that's what we've seen play out over the last couple of years. But is it is it fair that the expectation that a Mercedes customer team like McLaren battle with a full-on works team? I think sometimes we forget because they're not they're not providing power units to other teams. So the Renault power unit doesn't maybe get the widespread acknowledgement that maybe it deserves, but Alpine is itself a works team. So I think maybe to pass them in the constructor standings as they did a couple of years ago is maybe more an indictment of Alpine, less than it is an acknowledgement of some of the great things that McLaren are doing. But my friend, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about recently is what their long-term strategy is. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. As I mentioned, they're currently a Mercedes customer's team. Uh, recently, they were also a Renault customer team. And before that, obviously, there was the there was the fiasco and the partnership and then the messy divorce with Honda. But we've seen stories come out recently that indicated Zach Brown is doing his due diligence on where they want to go directionally in 2026. They're, they're not committed to using a Mercedes power unit what what do you think the future has in store for this team and can they contend meaningly or meaningfully for wins in and championships so long as they're a customer team yeah i think you're right i think we've seen a lot of um zach brown sort of shopping around because we're we're three years away from these massive regulation changes where it comes to engines and with that we're going to see a load more power unit suppliers. So they've they've stripped away a lot of the expensive parts so we're seeing people like audi as well as honda sort of come back into the sport and um yeah i think mclaren at the moment is sort of working out where's our best best bet really i think 
in my personal opinion, I think a move, I know it didn't end well, as you referenced a minute ago, but I think a move back to Honda might be the smartest move because even though they wouldn't be a works team, they'd probably be Honda's main team. And as we saw Red Bull, that worked amazingly well for Red Bull. They got all the engines they wanted and the Honda engine proved to be one of the quickest on the grid. So if McLaren can get that from 2026, then they sort of become a works team without being a works team and you get all the benefits of that. And I think you're right to point out that it is often forgotten that McLaren are a customer team because they're sort of one of the most historic brands in the sport. And But Alpine, like you said, still have their own engine department. Um, I think the question of whether a customer team can battle for the championship is a really tricky one. I think it's getting more and more hard, I think, for a customer team to fight those power unit suppliers. Because if we look at the top three and the top four, in fact, last year, all of them, I know Red Bull's a bit of a half and half case where they're making their own engines, but they're not quite ready yet. But all of those top teams are the ones that make their own engines. I think there's got to be a correlation to that. That doesn't, that's not just coincidence. So McLaren are never going to make their own engines. I know they have a massive car making business, but they're not going to make their own engines. So I think, yeah, their best bet, in my opinion, would be to link up with Honda and sort of become a Honda works team. Because then you get all the benefits of having a works team, but without all that cost of producing your own engine. You are absolutely singing my tune. And we did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago when that was, I don't know that it was leaked, but it was speculated in the media that maybe that could be a partnership that was on the uh, the docking for 2026. And of course, Zach Brown has since gone and visited Milton Keynes and done a walkthrough of the 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 under construction. Well, I guess not under construction now, the, the fully operational Red Bull powertrains. Well, I guess it's now the Ford Red Bull powertrains uh, factory. <laughs> But I, I love that idea of a potential partnership with Honda. And I, I think it's key to remember, too, that the leadership in place at McLaren now is fundamentally different than it was in 2015 when the most recent Honda partnership happened, that it would be a fresh start, a fresh slate, new people, new stakeholders. And and I think if you're, if you're McLaren, and again, the key benefit of being a works team is the design of the car and the design of the engine go, go hand in hand. Whereas if you're a customer team, you're you're being forced to adapt your design and, and, and your car philosophy to the power unit that's being provided to you, and you don't get to give any feedback to that power unit. So you know your arrows being influenced by the cooling requirements of the power unit, and and really that that puts you on a bit of the back foot. But I think. This could be a perfect, a perfect solution for both McLaren and for Honda because I think Honda likely still has some desire to be involved in the sport. Obviously, like you said, the 2026 power regulations, power unit regulations take out some of those really expensive components, including the MGUH, et cetera. Uh, it could be a perfect solution for them too because they don't have to commit to buying a factory. They don't have to commit to having and owning a team, but they get the benefit of having their brand all over the car. So I would really agree that that would be a great place to see that team go a, a little bit early. Obviously preseason testing hasn't been great for McLaren. Any idea where you would expect them to fall in the, in the middle of the pack this year, where you think they might finish in the constructors or is it just too early? Uh, it's probably better, but I'll, I'll make a prediction. Anyway. I'm going to go, I think P6. I'm going to go obviously behind the top three behind Alpine. And then I also think Aston Martin are going to be a very good team. I wouldn't just be surprised if Aston Martin were the ones fighting Alpine for that P4. So unfortunately for McLaren, that does leave P6 as the next open spot. So for now, that's where I'd say they're going to finish. Well, let's use that as the perfect segue to the next question or the next storyline that we have here on, on our outline, which is, will the Aston Martin project bear fruit for the chairman, Mr. Lawrence Stroll? So, of course, a few years ago, he rescued the Force India team from administration. And, and for those of you in North America, um, honestly, Google administration, I'm too lazy to try and explain that. And probably also just not capable of trying to explain what that means. But he rescued the team from administration, forced it to became Racing Point. And of course, he had designs on it always becoming something resembling a works team. Of course, they don't produce their own power units. Um, and of course, it became Aston Martin a couple of years ago. He has, my friend, been shockingly patient with this project because they haven't been great the last couple of years, despite the fact that they brought on four times world champion Seb Vettel, who of course is now retired. But he's been, in my opinion, very, very patient. And he was on the uh, Beyond the Grid podcast a couple of years ago when he talked about the fact that this was a five-year project. And he was asked at the time, 
do you expect to win world championships in five years? And in his perspective was no, but he expects to contend for world championships. And of course, we've all known the huge amount of investment that he's put into this team and the factory and the money that he's also simultaneously been pumping into the road car division to keep its status and relevance in place. What are your expectations for an Aston Martin team that's going to go into the season with possibly two new drivers? Yeah, um, I think you're right to sort of highlight all that all the everything that Lawrence Stroll's put in because I think he is probably the most ambitious man on the grid like if you look to Aston Martin finishing P7 as they did last year I think everyone would be laughing if they suggested they're going to try and fight for championships but they've said that they've said this is our goal we're going to do it and I think there's quite some bullish words and Mr Stroll in the launch he said usually when I put my mind to something it happens so that's fair enough um yeah you're right it's 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 a sort of a new dawn, really. Like Vettel's gone out the door, and in comes Alonso, who's another world champion. Fair enough, not to the same degree that Vettel was, but I think Alonso is going to be the driver that sort of elevates him to another level. I think he's very demanding as a driver. He demands a lot of his team. Like he's not going to settle. He's obviously been sold this big dream of we're going to be fighting for perhaps podiums this year. He's gonna he's gonna want to see the results really. But they're another team that is sort of going into the new season with a lot of unknowns i'd say it's probably the best word because obviously not only is it new cars to deal with they've got a new factory in the way they've got um dan fallows who's the ex red bull head of aero so he's obviously a man with a lot of knowledge and this is sort of his first car that he's designed but we've also got this running subplot of uh where's lance stroll like lawrence is stroll's son <laughs> who's uh had this cycling accident that no one no one really knows how serious it is yet it's one of the weird things that aston martin yeah. has been very I shouldn't be laughing, but I, I love the way you phrase that. <laughs> it's, it's a bit like, where's Wally? Um, it's very confusing, really, because Aston Martin has been very secretive about just how injured he is. And you'd think the fact that we've now come through three days of testing, and not only has he not been in the car, he hasn't even been in the paddock. We haven't seen him at all. He's somewhere off in presumably a Spanish hospital where he had the accident. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. Like It's now a question of we're, we're almost a week out from the race, and... We're asking who's going to be in that car alongside Alonso. So it's not ideal preparations. But I think, I mean, this happened last year. Obviously, Vettel got COVID and missed out of the two, first two races. So um, I'd say once they get that sorted, I mean, Felipe Drogovic is another very exciting young driver. Whether he gets the the nod to come in and do the actual race, we'll see. Um, but once Stroll comes back for whatever this mysterious injury is, I think they are, <laughs> I think... They are definitely a team that are going to finish a lot higher than their P7. I think, like I mentioned previously, I think them and Alpine are going to sort of be battling for that P4 spot. I think I'd give Alpine the edge currently. I think they've got two really good drivers. I'm still not quite sold on um, Lance Stroll as a driver, but I think Alonso sort of evens that out really. So yeah, I think the future is very bright. I wouldn't put it past them because they've got all this uh, expansion and money going into their Silverstone base as well, sort of just adding all these components, making sure they're probably the most highly developed team on the grid, really, that they make want their factory to be the gold standard, really. So if put all these pieces together, so you've got the personnel, the team, the team headquarters and things like that, it will eventually start bearing fruit. So whether that's this year or next year or whenever, yeah, I'm sure it will happen one day. I'm curious because you and I have never had the chance to talk about this, but what do you think Lawrence Stroll's motivations were for bringing Sebastian Vettel into this team a, a couple of years ago. My my perspective at the time, and I think it may have been a little bit misguided, was that as much as it may have been to help with the development of the cars, it was probably also to push to push Lance and and for Lance to be exposed to the data and the telemetry that comes from a world champion caliber driver. And it's it's difficult to know whether Lance's personal development has really pushed along because the team has kind of been mired in mediocrity, like you said, a P7 last year. But what do you think was the motivation for bringing Seb in a couple of years ago? And what do you think are the expectations that the chairman and Lawrence Stroll has for Fernando? Is is he there to kid glove Lance a little bit and help with Lance's development? Or is to hell with Lance, he's there to contend for podiums and look out for Fernando? I think why they brought Vettel in, I think it was sort of a real sign of how far they'd come. Because obviously the drivers before, they had really good drivers, Sergio Perez, someone like that. But to get a world champion in, not just one who won one world champion, but four consecutive world champions really show like, okay, we're here now. We mean to compete. 
Fair enough, Vettel was at the end of his career, so he probably wasn't as good as he was during his Red Bull days. But he still, he was still a very good driver. We saw last year, even when the car wasn't great, that he was producing some great performances. And um, I think it would have done Lance Stroll no end of good to be next to someone like Vettel, who's well known as being someone who really takes every part of the every part of the race seriously, not just the actual race itself, but the entire build-up, all the practice, all that technical data. And I think if Lance sort of took a page out of Vettel's book and said, okay, this is how a world champion prepares for a race, then if I do similar, it's going to be in my benefit. So yeah, I think that's a great person for him to learn with, learn from. In terms of what Alonso brings, I think he is more of a signing they want results from. Like we we saw last year, Alpine that he's still capable to get results, even if he's forty one now. I believe um, he's up there in terms of age, but he's still as good as he ever was. And I think there's a mixture. I don't think Alonso is going to be as good a teammate to Lance Stroll. I think Vettel probably was much more accommodating. I think Alonso has always been quite narrow-minded and sort of focused on himself we saw last year he was having a bit of a fight vest of man Ocon on a few occasions so whether that but obviously you've got such an interesting dynamic at Aston Martin because while Esteban Ocon and Alonso were allowed to fight at Alpine is that going to be the case at Aston Martin when your teammates your boss's son like that's a weird weird relationship that's a weird situation where if you're battling going into a corner is the back of your mind thinking okay if I crash this guy out like I'm gonna have my boss on the phone after the race so I think Alonso is there to score points but I think some of his early quotes have shown that he's willing to toe the party line as it were I think there was a memorable quote that he said that Lance Stroll is a future world champion. I mean, how much he actually believes that and how much he was saying that to <laughs> believe Lawrence Stroll, we'll never know really. So, yeah, I think Alonso is definitely their lead driver. But I think, again, it's just a great person for Lance Stroll to learn from really and sort of hone his craft. I get very frustrated with Lance sometimes because I, I strongly believe there's there is talent there. I worry about the the desire and and the hunger to be great. And we've obviously seen flashes that Baku podium in 17, the fact that he was able to score a couple of podiums in 2020 in the COVID shortened year, the fact that he scored that beautiful qualifying pole in the rain and in Turkey. Like I feel like there's talent there and I just, I get frustrated because we don't see enough of it. But then again, at the same time, this kid's only 24. He's been in the championship for six years. He's still only 24. And Nick is going to join this year with Alpha Tower. He's a, a rookie at 28 with one race under his belt. So sometimes I have to be reminded that maybe I need to be a little bit more patient with, with Lance. And, and hopefully, hopefully this year, Fernando does compete for podiums and either that's going to do one of two things. It's going to, instill the urgency in Lance to be great and to contend himself, or it's going to expose him and and force Lawrence to make a really difficult decision about what he's going to do with that second driver's seat going forward. My friend, let's take a quick commercial break, pay some of these proverbial bills, and we'll come back and jump into the next topic. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me once again from Planet F1, Mr. Sam Cooper. If you're joining us a little bit late today, we are sitting here going through some of the sexiest storylines of the 2023 championship so far. We've talked about McLaren. Can they break through in 2023? We talked about the Aston Martin project potentially bearing fruit for the chairman, Mr. Lawrence Stroll. The next topic that I have for you, my friend, is this one. Will Lewis potentially contend for a championship after a winless 2022? What seemed at times, and I'm reading off the outline here, what seemed at times like a hopeless 2022 campaign for Mercedes was boiled by a race victory for George Russell in Brazil, but Lewis went winless for the first time in his career. Can he bounce back to contend versus Max? Or will he have his hands full with George? I mean, what better motivation is there to break that streak of winless seasons? I think the situation Hamilton finds himself now compared to 12 months ago is so different. Because obviously 12 months ago, we just come out of Abu Dhabi. There was still a lot of raw tension. I think I don't, we don't know how close Hamilton was going to get to retire, but he sort of got some signs that he was at least considering it. Whereas this year, like he seems laser focused, like... He knows that last year, I think last year sort of made him appreciate all his success a bit more. I think if you've always just won races and races and won world championships, you sort of maybe take it for a bit for granted. And last year was a bit of a wake-up, not a wake-up call, but just a reminder that it's not always going to be that good. So I think going into this year, 
I think Mercedes were interesting that they chose to stick with that side pod design when pretty much the rest of the grid are sort of either followed the Red Bull mold or the Ferrari mold. They a lot of the cars look a lot similar this year than they did last year, but Mercedes were confident at least that we're going to stick with this. So whether that bears fruit, um, again, they're one of the teams that after testing, they were sort of talking about, okay, we're still a little bit behind Red Bull. And I don't think this time next week when Bahrain Grand Prix is happening, I don't think Mercedes will be challenging for wins as, not, as such. But I think we saw last season that they're a kind of team that can develop really well. So their car will get stronger and stronger, whereas other teams might reach their peak and sort of plateau very early on i think mercedes are sort of one that can drag out the development process to make sure they're always very strong so that's what the car part done um if we get to the drivers you're right like that's another thing for hamilton that he's got something to prove like this is one of the few times that he's been beaten by a teammate it's just something that doesn't really happen i think i think nico rosberg was probably the last person that did it so it's a point to prove that not only has he been beaten, but he's been beaten by this kid who was in his first car, his first year at Mercedes. So it's massive motivation for him. Personally, I do think he'll be back up the championship. I think, I think that second half of 2022 showed that Hamilton is the better of the two drivers. And I think that will just be more prevalent going into 2023. And I, I think judging off the, going from the very early results, I think it is definitely running between Verstappen, Leclerc and Hamilton, which is obviously massively exciting for the fans. And let's hope that continues long into the season. And like last year when Max had it wrapped up about halfway through. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be another year of Hamilton back to his best. Like I can't imagine we're going to see another 22-like year where he somehow ends the season winless. You know, I, I hope that people listening to this podcast are getting as excited about <laughs> the championship as I am listening to you talk about it. Just all these different storylines and things that that could transpire. My, my friend last year, and of course, you're in the press conferences, you're interviewing the drivers and the team principals and all of the other stakeholders in Formula One. One of the things that I recall from early last season was despite all the trouble that Mercedes was having with that car, George Russell still managed to string together a lot of P5 finishes. And maybe he shouldn't have based on the car that the team had given him. And in meanwhile, you know, and of course, this was in the immediate aftermath in the shadow of AD in 2021, but Lewis just didn't emotionally, psychologically seem to be the same driver that we'd known for so long. And I think by the end of the championship, I think psychologically, he was in a much better place. I think he was becoming more confident with the car. And I think there was some there was some motivation there simply because I think he was frustrated with the porpoising issue. And I think he was frustrated with the fact that he wasn't able to immediately contend with Ferrari or Red Bull. Where do you think his head is now? This is this is obviously one of the greatest drivers in the history of the sport. He was a few laps away from having an eighth world championship. Last year was obviously a struggle. The car was a handful. George Russell, as you just described, beat him in the in the constructor or in the drivers' championship. Where do you think he is psychologically right now? Is he in the same place that he was at the beginning of last season? Or do you think he's in a much better, more positive space and he's ready to go out there and compete every single race not to suggest for a second that he wasn't competing last year but the way that he would come across in interviews and things like that wasn't the same lewis that we'd known for the previous decade and a half i think 2022 if we look at it russell came from a team in williams that just weren't expected to compete and obviously they had a much weaker car and he's had years of practice that so that sort of explains why he was able to get so much out of that w13 that he'd he'd been used to a misperforming car so he can get the best out of it whereas we take hamilton and he's pretty much since he came into the sport, he's been used to a car that's able to win races that's naturally quick. So it's just like a real recalibration of his skills, really, like to sort of, OK, my car's not as good as it was. How do I get the best out of it? In terms of his mentality, I think it's massively different from this time last year. I think there was a real, for lack of a better word, I'd say bitterness, like not bitterness, but sort of just angry at the way. Abu Dhabi unfolded and sort of that clouded, not his judgment, but sort of clouded talk around him going into the new season. Obviously, we had all those retirement um, rumours. But whereas this year, it seems a bit more, I think he's still as bullish as ever, but it's sort of, he accepted last year and he said, okay, that wasn't great, but like, how do we move on from that? How do we, as a team, improve? And I think he's just got that real motivation that, okay, yeah, sp speaking of, I sat in um, a press conference with him few weeks ago now but he was very he seemed very calm he seemed very confident he wasn't the case of 
oh, the car's rubbish. He he sort of knew that their car was going to be better than the last year, and he probably backs himself to sort of get that little bit extra out of it and contend for World Tires. So, yeah, I think the situation he is in now is almost entirely different than last year. There's no there's no drama surrounding him. There's no conflict, for lack of a better, better words. But I think he's just someone who's incredibly determined to get that eighth world title that you mentioned that he was one lap away from. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's foolish to write him off, even if that car isn't great to start with. I think he'll be right up there come the end of the season. If Mercedes wants to make strides in the championship this year, they're going to have to compete not only with Red Bull, but with a, I don't want to say significantly retooled, but a massaged Ferrari. The next point on this outline here is this, can Ferrari, and I'm using British tabloid talk here, but can Ferrari emerge as a contender after a horror 2022 new leadership, presumably more reliable power units, strategy changes? Have Ferrari done enough to recover from a terrible 2022? I personally don't feel like they've done enough because I think a lot of the problems last year were strategy based and by the looks of it a lot of those same people are still in their jobs so they'll still be making those kind of decisions i think matteo bonotto obviously fell on his sword he, he resigned but i think he was pretty much pushed and but he wasn't the one making the calls to pit charles twice pretty much in a row in monaco and things like that so whether fred Vassour can sort of stamp that out is a big ask i think Obviously, we had the strategy errors, but we also had reliability errors. And I think there's been a lot of work gone into that reliability to sort of make it a thing of the past for you. So I think, just judging from the early signs, I think going into the season, there's going to be a lot less of those issues. So I think that's, A, something that's an improvement. I think, I think again, they have one of the two, as I say with Mercedes and Red Bull, obviously, they have such a great driver pairing that these both really skilled drivers. I know that Carlos Sainz only got one win, but sort of, not really reflective of his skills. So I think on paper, they've got all the right things. So they've got a quick car, they've got an experienced team principal, they've got two good drivers, but then there's that added element that it is Ferrari and something always seems to go wrong at Ferrari. Like it's the most crazy <laughs> team on the grid. They've got a whole country like wanting them to do well, but at the same time, if it doesn't go well, it's incredible amount of pressure. And I think, I think Fred Vassell talked about this himself a bit, that it is the most high pressure job in Formula One. Like this it's, it's one thing to be a team principal. It's another thing to be team principal of Ferrari. So, again, I think they're up there with Red Bull and Mercedes. I think they will be fighting, but it's just a case of not shooting themselves in the foot as much as they did last year, which sounds like an easy task, but when you're Ferrari, it seems a bit harder than for the rest of the team. Your sense, and it's early, we've just sat through three days of preseason testing. Your your initial gut feeling in terms of who's going to out contend to and again we'll save the we'll save the red bull prediction for a couple of minutes but do you think mercedes will comfortably contend with ferrari or does ferrari just have an edge given the fact that really a lot of their issues last year were kind of self-inflicted in terms of strategy in terms of some of those driver issues uh the reliability of the power unit clearly partway through the camp championship they had to turn down the power unit to preserve the the racing integrity of those power units and keep the cars on the track. But can you, can you see a world where Mercedes overtakes Ferrari or if things go well for Ferrari, um, is that enough to finish P2 or better in the championship? I can't see a world where Mercedes, I think off the, just going off what you know now, I think the SF23, which is the car, Ferrari's car this year, I think that is a stronger car. I think the base they had from last year was obviously much higher than Mercedes. Like Mercedes spent a long time of their la year last year just sort of fixing problems whereas Ferrari and Red Bull could obviously look forward much more than Mercedes could so I think they had an advantage I think I think uh, Turtle Wolf said a good line he said something like we're doing a 100 meter dash 10, 10 meters behind everyone else so there is a lot of catching up to do and I think that's not going to happen immediately like this winter break it might seem like ages for us fans and who want the sport to come back but for the teams it's not a load of time to completely rewrite the book really um so I think Ferrari will start ahead of Mercedes definitely for the first few races I wouldn't be surprised if we get halfway through the season where that Ferrari is still one of the stronger cars especially in terms in comparison to the Mercedes rather but I think come the end of the season I think we're going to see a lot more of an equal battle really I think Mercedes just have this history of being able to develop a car really well I think Ferrari have been good at making a car that's strong at the start we saw, I mean we saw this in 2022 like this time last year they had by far the strongest car they 
won two of the opening three races. And at that point, everyone was thinking, oh, it's Ferrari's title to lose. But then we all know what happened next. Like, just a series of errors saw their title bid fall away. So I think the problem with uh, Ferrari is it's much a human problem as it is a car problem. Like, they seem to have a lot of strategy errors, as I mentioned, or driver errors as well. They happen to, like, if they can cut them out, then yeah, they've got an incredibly strong car, but that is a big if. You speak to the fact that they have an entire country behind them and the stresses and the pressures that come with this. What obviously compounds that is the fact that this team hasn't won any championship since 2007. We're, we're, we're creeping closer to the 20-year mark, which is which is remarkable. My friend, the next question here is this. We are going into a 2023 championship campaign with three young rookies. Well, I shouldn't say young because one of them is 28, but we have three rookies on the grid. Nick DeVries, who is obviously 28. Oscar Piastri, who of course is a uh, champion. And Logan Sargent, uh, who competed in Formula 2 last year, didn't win a championship, is probably a little bit behind from a development perspective um, as, as far as his his uh, counterparts are concerned. Nick DeVries obviously won an F2 championship, went on to win a Formula E championship. What are your expectations of the rookies this year? They're they're going into three very different situations. Nick is sliding into that Honda-powered Alpha Tauri. Oscar, in a, a bit of a shock move, is going to be with McLaren, where I think all of us would have expected this to have been a slam dunk that he would have been with Alpine. We probably don't need to relitigate that, but that was a really great story last summer. Um, and then Logan Sargent, the young American driver, the first American driver since since Alexander Rossi in 2015 is going to be joining the Williams Grove based team uh, for the entire championship. Your your thoughts on the rookie class of 2023? I think you're right to say that the the situations for all three of them are massively different. So if we sort of like pick apart one by one, so we'll start with Piastri. I think of the three, he's obviously the most highly talented. He's got multiple championship wins. He's coming to the sport very young. He was. It was sort of a surprise he wasn't on the grid last year. I think it was a bit too soon in his development. But he's someone that's come in with this massive expectation. And I think of those three teams, you'd say McLaren are traditionally the strongest. Obviously, AlphaTauri have done well over the years, but um, not as well, not to the same level that McLaren have. So I think the expectation for him is probably a lot higher than the other two. Um, But he also has this great safety net that no one's really expecting to beat Norris I mean I think Daniel Ricciardo set quite a low bar for him to just be a bit closer to Norris I think I don't think anyone was expecting Piastri to destroy Norris in the championship I don't think anyone was expecting Piastri to beat Norris in the championship but I think there's an expectation that we want to see some progress we want to see our second driver get somewhere close to the uh, first driver which is Norris and um, what that translates to on the track I think that just means consistent point scoring so whether it's P9s P8s or stuff like that I think that's sort of what Piastri's targets are for McLaren. In terms of Nick De Vries, that is another sort of odd one because, as you've mentioned, he's 28, so he's this rookie that's been around the paddock for years and years as a Mercedes reserve driver. He's won Formula E, he's won Formula Two. So even though he's a rookie, he's obviously coming in with a lot of maturity and whether that translates to experience. We saw in Monza, he's obviously very quick. He knows how to get the best out of a car. But I think AlphaTauri had like a dreadful season last year, which is such a surprise considering. The sister team, Red Bull, did so well. You'd have thought there'd be some similar kind of developments there. But I think AlphaTauri is sort of one of those teams that I'm not expecting a load from this year. I don't think Yuki Sonoda, I think he's got a big year to prove that he deserves to be in F1. I think if he doesn't do it this year, I think that might be the end of his Formula 1 career, which sounds quite harsh to say. But there's a lot of question marks over how good that car is and how good the drivers are, really. But I I don't know what a realistic target for Nick DeVries is. I think an occasional point scoring they'd probably be happy with, but we'll see as the first few races unfolds. Really. And then going on to Logan Sargent, I think I think this is very much a signing for the future. He's not a driver who's won a load in his junior career. And um, it's always going to be hard for a Williams driver coming in because we, we saw someone as talented as Russell was unable to consistently score points in that car, which seems crazy considering it's Williams and one of the most historic teams on the grid. But... Um, yeah, I think his goal this year is to get as much mileage in the car as he can, get used to it. I think Williams are quite clearly going to back him going into the future. So even if even if he has the worst season possible and doesn't score a point, I don't think that's enough for him to get the sack, really. So I think, yeah, there's just a lot of different targets uh, for each rookie on the grid. And I think if I had to put them in sort of talent order, I think Piastri is clearly up the top and then sort of... DeVries and Sargent are still quite big unknowns, really. 
I think there's probably less questions within the Formula One community about why McLaren made the move to secure Oscar Piastri. I think there probably aren't a ton of questions about the fact that Alpha Tauri would go after Nick DeVries with all of his success in the junior levels and in Formula E. The Logan Sargent one still comes across as something of a surprise and certainly not trying to be disingenuous to him in, in any meaningful way, but with all of the options in Formula One, why do you think Dorleton Williams chose Logan Sargent? Do do they see an upside there that perhaps um, I'm not seeing? What, what do you think the motivation was behind that signing? I think there's a mix between drive the driver himself and sort of the audience he can bring, if I say that in a cynical way. So I think from the driver element, I do think there's someone they believe in. They think is someone that's going to get better as the year goes on and perhaps elevate into a new level. I think we've also got to recognise that it's quite hard for Williams to attract the best talent. Like, if we think of their drivers of the last year, it's been Nicholas Satifi. Great yeah, point. Great Nicholas point. Nicholas for the last year. And then it's Alex Albon, who was sort of rejected out of Red... Not rejected, he's still a part, but like a Red Bull reject kind of thing. And then I think they're not going to be able to get the calibre of an Oscar Piastri. He's just not going to want to go. I mean, there were rumours that Alpine were looking at doing a loan deal to someone like Williams and he just wasn't having that. So I think that's sort of, they recognise the level that they're sort of putting all their eggs in one basket and hoping that Sargent's not good enough for other teams to want him now, but maybe he will be in a few years and we can sort of benefit from that. But also, as I mentioned, I think there, this is probably quite cynical, but I think there's a definitely a markability to him because as I think we spoke about last time I was on the pod, that Obviously, Formula One in the US and North America has exploded in the last few years. And what's been the one thing that's been missing so far is an American driver. So the fact that they now have an American driver is something that's going to bring a lot of eyeballs onto Williams. So that's something from the cynical markability point of view. I think that's something they would have definitely been like, okay, if we get this driver in, like we suddenly get a lot more fans and a lot more revenue in in a year when there's three US races and five in total in North America. So yeah, like it's a big time for that region in F1. I think having US drivers is the perfect time to capitalize on that really. So hopefully for them, he does turn out well and that's that's that really, but we shall see as the season goes on. Let's take one more commercial break, pay some of those bills and we'll jump back. We have one final storyline and then I've handpicked three specific questions for you from our listener audience. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton, joined once again by Mr. Sam Cooper of Planet F1. My friend, the final question for you, and we haven't really talked a lot about Red Bull as we've been going through these sexy storylines of 2023, so that's over now. Can Max Verstappen three-peat in 2023? Can he become just the 11th driver to win three titles in his career? And can he become just the fifth driver to win three consecutive Formula One championships? In a succinct way, yes, he can. I think they're my favorite team and driver. I think we've seen in testing that I think Verstappen topped all but a couple of the maybe even just one. Yeah, one of the times that he was running in and even on the Saturday, Perez topped the time. So clearly the car is quick. And I think Verstappen last year showed himself as just such a mature driver. I think a lot of his wins, he probably wouldn't have done that earlier in his career. I think one of the tags that perhaps unfairly was attributed to Verstappen was he was too reckless, he was too risky. And I think he showed last year that he sort of, he hasn't lost those elements. He's still very willing to risk it, but he's also sort of recognised when to do it and when not to do it. So I think combining that with what looks like an excellent car, I think the RB18 just sort of moved clear of the rest of the field last year. It became clear that this is the quickest car. And I think even with that cost cap penalty, I, I don't believe that's going to affect them that much. And I think this RB19 has already proven itself a very quick car. And the fact that, I mean, in my opinion, Verstappen is the best driver on the grid as currently. Like, I know there's always going to be comparisons to Hamilton, and I appreciate what Hamilton's done in his career, but I think at this moment in time, Verstappen looks the stronger of the two, and he's had two years of dominance, really. And I think, yeah, it's going to take a very good driver. If someone beats Verstappen, I think that person will be world champion. So 
if someone can do that, we'll see. Yeah, I agree. I certainly don't think multiple people are going to beat him in the, the World Drivers Championship this year. And if somebody does, it's probably going to be one person and they will be crowned the champion themselves. And I think Red Bull and I think Max find themselves in a very, very special place. And and when I say that, I mean, the current aero regulations are, are, again, the teams are going to iterate and innovate and evolve, but we've kind of gotten locked into this current iteration of Formula One car and the power units have been frozen since last year. And of course, that that disproportionately benefits Red Bull because that Honda power unit was in such a great place when the engine freeze happened, which means that Ferrari and Mercedes and Alpine really can't iterate on their power unit. They can they can do some tweaks based on reliability, but they aren't really able to draw any more performance out of that power unit. So Red Bull just happens to be in this magic place for the next three championships, including 2023, where Max has every integrated every built-in benefit to potentially contend for not one, but multiple championships. And again, everything changes in 2026. We don't know what the future holds. A whole new power unit. We'll see certainly different chassis and aerodynamic formula changes as well. But at least for now, 23, 24, 25, it presents this magical opportunity to Max and to Red Bull, much like it did to Mercedes from 2014 to 2020. And if I think if I think we go into 2026 and he hasn't secured at least one, maybe two championships, I think we'll look back in great disappointment at what could have been for this team. But I would agree that Max is probably the odds on favorite to win this year. I think he's exceptionally talented. I think the maturity is getting better. I think obviously it wasn't a good look to Red Bull in Brazil of last year where that that entire situation played out so publicly. Although we don't really know what the motivation was. I think we can all make some informed guesses as to what the genesis was for that that breakdown in in kind of partnership on the track, but I think he's in a really really great place and he should probably win the championship this year and he should probably win at least one more before we transition into 2026. Would you put your money? And again, I won't certainly won't hold this to you, but I think if there's any sound prediction for 23, it's probably Max taking that three peat. Would you agree? Yeah, hundred percent. I think if you look at all the other title contenders, I think you can all pick prop, uh, pick faults or pick problems that might arise. And I think the only maybe that is, as you mentioned, that sort of relationship with Perez, but it seems like that's all been ironed out. Like it's all been fine. Yeah, I think. There's no real obvious weakness to A, Verstappen and also the Red Bull car. So yeah, I think my money is definitely on Verstappen. We're going to jump into a couple of listener questions and then let you go because you were exhausted after <laughs> three days of consuming preseason testing. And at some point, you've got to squeeze in your drive to survive as well. First question here is from Carlos Van Carlos. Is the question of if or when Fernando Alonso, sorry, is the question if or when Fernando Alonso will have beef with his new team in Aston Martin? Good question. I think if we look at the Alonso history, he's has, has there ever been a team he hasn't fallen out with at some point? I think I mentioned this earlier that he's just such a demanding driver. Like if he if one little thing's wrong, he's not afraid to basically go to his boss and tell him off. Really, so yeah, I think the list is right to suggest that it's a matter of if there is going to be disappointments. There is going to be disagreements between the two. So it's just sort of, I think, I think maybe Alonso might realise that this is his, realistically, this is his last contract in F1. So there's no point burning these bridges. Like, but on the flip side, if if he knows, if he knows he's outside of F1, then why not just burn all the bridges? But yeah, I think he's right. There is going to be some disagreements at some point. You don't have Alonso in your car unless they're winning every race. He's not going to be happy with something. So, I think the list is right to sort of suggest that's on on its way. Our next question here comes from Nilu in Los Angeles, and she asks, what is Doralton's objective with Williams? The team has been awful since 2017, and they don't seem to be getting any better under the stewardship of Doralton. When are they finally going to invest in this team, and when are we going to finally see an improvement on the track? It's another very good question. I mean, I'm at a loss really to sort of explain what their goals are. I think they came in uh opportunistic time. I think the Williams family was struggling to stay afloat and they saw saw an easy way onto the grid, really. But I think as we spoke about Lawrence Stroll earlier, he's a, a billionaire pumping money in. Like there's levels in Formula One. It's it's a very expensive sport, like to get anywhere. And the fact that Williams are sort of seen as this 
not spending huge amounts even that is several hundred millions of dollars like it's a lot of money but i i i don't know what their goal is i think they like having their name associated with an f1 team because obviously that brings a lot of publicity but whether they want to sort of front up the cash to push themselves up the grid i think they're only going to get left behind really we're seeing a lot of teams around them so we're seeing like people like Haas we're seeing people like Aston Martin sort of investing more and more Haas have obviously got these new sponsors that are bringing more income in and I think if you're not if what's, what's the phrase if you're not moving forward you're standing still and like the rest of the teams are going to start getting further and further like Williams are already quite far back in terms of their pace as we saw last year so I think that's only going to increase in this year and I think I don't know what the goal is for the owners. Maybe their goal is to one day sell up, but there's been a lot of talk about that. But there's, I think Williams have made it clear they don't plan to do that. So yeah, I'm afraid that's a bit of a non-answer, but the truth is I can't tell you what they, they're planning because no one really knows. The final question of the show, and then we'll let you go, comes from Aliyah in Alexandria, Egypt. And her question is, does Mick find his way back into Formula One, so presumably on the grid as a full-time driver in the future? I think he does, yeah. I mean, we can use Nico Hulkenberg as a great example. I know he's the man who replaced me with Schumacher, but he was someone who spent a long time out of the sport and made his way back at the age of 35. I think Mick's still very young. I think 2024 might be a bit too soon, especially that whole Daniel Ricciardo floating around in the background. So I think if a team has a choice between those two, I think most people would go for Ricciardo, but he's still very young. I think he's got time. I think this year at Mercedes is going to do in the world of good just to a be around a team that's used to winning but also to be with drivers like Hamilton who he's going to learn a huge amount for I think Toto Wolf is an ideal team principal because he's obviously someone who really believes in the talent of Mick and I think obviously he was his dad's former team so there's that connection so I think yeah this year although he'd be disappointed not to be on the grid I think this is the perfect place for him in a similar way to Red Bull's the perfect place for Ricardo their different stages of the career so yeah I think one day he'll be back on the grid I'm not gonna say it's gonna be in 2024 sorry I think that's probably a bit too soon but yeah I think one day we will see that Schumacher back on the grid. Sam I cannot thank you enough for your time this weekend i really appreciate you sitting down with us where can our listeners find you on social media where can they check out your work yeah so my twitter handle is uh sam cooper underscore um and then all of my works on planetf1.com so yeah we've recently had a big site redesign i mean we've got a lot of we used to be very red it's now a lot of green so yeah i think we're sort of getting ready for the big season we've also got um a new youtube channel which i should probably plug called uh on track gp so i think we had the first few videos come out last week and i'm going to be recording a season preview next week so yeah that's going to come out that's sort of going to hopefully kick into gear so yeah i think those are the best places yeah make sure you uh send that our way if i don't pick up on it right away i'd love to retweet that and make sure our listeners get the opportunity to check that out to everybody listening at home thank you so much we hope you're enjoying this absolute feast of preseason content that we are producing if you like what we do when you listen on spotify if you could give us a rating and if you listen on apple if you could give us a rating and a review you know it means the world to mr daly and i mr sam cooper thank you so much for joining us to everyone we'll speak to you again yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song, and my song's gon' break through like a running back